Welcome podcast listeners to the Spheres podcast. I'm your host, Toby Castle, and Spheres is a public theology podcast that helps successful people to live more philosophically by creating brave spaces of shared meaning. Each episode features an extended interview with a different athlete, scholar, educator, entrepreneur, politician, or activist, and how they think theologically and live well in society. This episode is episode one. That's right, you've joined us at the beginning of something really special. And today's guest is Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, the William Marcellus McFeeters Professor of Old Testament Emerita from Columbia Theological Seminary in Georgia. She holds a PhD from Princeton, an MA from Providence, and a BA from the College of New Rochelle. Previously, she taught at Mary Knowles School of Theology and has taught frequently in local churches, community groups, and given courses in Thailand, Japan, Central America, and Ireland. Recently, I spoke with Dr. O'Connor and explored with her how people in the Bible respond to disaster and suffering and engage in the necessary work of processing and recovering from personal crisis or collective catastrophe via what we know as the process of lament. I hope you find this conversation really helpful. Dr. O'Connor, thank you for joining us. Um, To kind of open this conversation, what I wanted to ask you was, as a theologian and Old Testament Bible scholar, what does it mean for you to live philosophically? Uh, Thank you, Toby. The category of living philosophically is not front and center for me. I um, am interested in living religiously. And by religious I also mean spiritual. I don't mean religion over here and spirituality over here. Um, I think religion at its best it, it is, uh, arises from the beating heart of spiritual, um, spiritual living, of, of living beyond, uh, within, solidly within, and also beyond our uh, it, uh, connected with, I will say, God, with the transcendent, with the other, with the nameless one, the holy one. And, um, and I think that that's what young people today who are looking for spirituality, not religion, find absent in so many of our churches, synagogues, and other places. But I want, I believe the resources for profound spirituality rests in the religious traditions, plural. And so if, if what you mean by philosophical living, living according to philosophy, you mean having an intellectual structure for your life, um, then, of course, I think everybody has one implicitly or explicitly. But for me, that language is language of abstraction. And so I prefer the concreteness and the embodiment of religious traditions. So you wrote a book called Lamentations and the Tears of the World, and you describe the despair of the dominant culture of North America and possibly the global West mm-hmm. as high despair. Mm-hmm. Um, could you explain what you mean by this and how you see it function in North American culture? Okay. Uh, that was. I, I want to point out that I wrote this book quite a while ago. I wrote it just before 9-11. So, okay, but um, at the time, I was looking at um, the commodification of life in the U.S. and in Western Europe um, and the turning toward things away from community concern, communal concern, away from um, living, I guess, out of the earth, living fully and um and I guess I was looking largely at uh, television, movie culture, but also people I know, uh, life in our big cities and so forth. And um, I actually think that the troubles the United States has encountered in the current past four years, if I might identify my politics right off the bat, um, is not distinct from that because we have had a culture of, um, of money, um, a, a class, one uh, percent issues about wealth, 
um, and the um, and the denial of the poor, the pushing aside of the people who are not in the educated cultured classes, which has happened somewhat unconsciously. So that's that was really what I started from. But you know, it, it, I, I don't think I was just talking about the culture. I was talking about aspects of church, and I was really talking about myself. And I want to add that I think we do that scholars implicitly or explicitly produce our material out of our own concerns and issues, whether we know it or not. And I now know it because everything I do <laughs> lately within the past 20 years really rose from the Lamentations work and um, involved and then, and then moved more explicitly into language of trauma and disaster. Mm -hmm. Even so that my most recent work is um, using um, trauma and disaster theory to understand the book of Genesis and who would think that's possible, but I'm convinced it works, <laughs> so. Absolutely. And so could you describe the book of Lamentations and how its, how its characteristics guide us to deal with the realities of suffering and trauma? Okay, right. All right, first, to, to do that um, as, as a, um, an honest biblical thinker, I have to put it in historical context in case your listeners aren't fully aware. Um, well, so um, I good. So I can I can say that I uh, I am not alone in arguing that the Book of Lamentations, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Prophets, um, and several other books emerge out of the catastrophe of the Babylonian invasions of Judah, Jerusalem, in the sixth century before BCE or BC, um, and um, and um, and to understand a little bit about that history, um, Babylon was an aggrandizing empire, colonizing and taking over as much of the world as possible in the ancient world to have vassal states and often to occupy them. They invaded the, the, the Babylonians. There was a lot of political intrigue, but the Babylonians invaded the city of Jerusalem three times, mm -hmm. each time destructive. The, uh, the first one um, meant that they were occupied. The second one in three in 582, tore, the army actually invaded, tore down the walls, burned the temple and the palace, uh, killed some of the royal family, deported the leadership. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the people who, some of the people who worked in government, of course, the priestly groups, the people who could read and were leaders of any kind. We think some commercial people, people who own property. So, um, and and they they forced them in a force march around the desert to be in Babylon, where they, they survived, some of them, and, and set up life there. Meanwhile, back in Judah, Jerusalem, uh, the city life is more or less destroyed. And we know from archaeology that many um, that, that life in the city shrank and many people were displaced to the northern area and uh, and resettled there. So uh, all of this is important, not just because it's history, but because it creates a climate of catastrophe mm -hmm. so that even if you and your family survive, you're now in Jerusalem, Judah under an occupied force. So you have no control really of your own life. You've lost people who are dead. You've lost your leaders and the nation, whether the nation will survive is the question. Because um, for those who don't know the history of the Bible, um, the, the Northern Kingdom of, uh, of, which was called Israel, there are two kingdoms after the United Monarchy, there are two kingdoms. The Northern Kingdom is, is invaded in the 700s and uh, effectively taken over by Assyria. And only a few of the people remain in the city of Samaria. The New Testament will call them Samaritans. Okay, so they're, they're really a destroyed nation. And the name Israel now comes down to Judah. And what seems likely is that the people in Judah 
are now in a similar situation with their population displaced, people exported or ex exiled, um, it, it seems like it's likely that they don't have any future at all. It seems like they too will uh, experience the fate of their Northern brothers and sisters, disappear into a larger um, empire. So with the dis that disappearance is also the disappearance of the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so um, the invasion um, destroys um, or greatly impairs daily existence, but it also brings to a grinding halt the philosophical system, the theological system that supported life in Judah among the people of Israel. So that um, it, it, the wound is profound because the, the God that they worshiped promised to be with them forever, to live with them on Mount Zion, to um, have the sons of David on the throne of Judah forever. And all of those things are gone. And so now survival, how will they survive? And look what they've lost. And so I think the important part about the book of Lamentations is that it addresses this situation, well, it doesn't address it as much as rise out of this situation of loss. So um, the book itself is just five short chapters of very dense poetry, but it's poetry that offers us not only voices of grief and loss and protest and fury, it's also poetry that depicts processes in my opinion, depicts processes of dealing with grief. And so, for example, um, uh, the, the, book contain, the book of five chapters contains a, a prop that seems to be four separate speaking voices. The city itself is personified as a woman left alone and abandoned on a hill. There's a narrator who comments on her uh, situation. There is the voice in the middle chapter of what I call um, the captured soldier. The Hebrew word allows that interpretation. It uses the word, the, his, uh, the speaker says, I am, I am the one, I am the geber. I am the, I am the strong man. The, the geber is a word that means a man charged with care of everybody else, the strong man, the warrior. So I depict him as a, as a captured soldier. Then there's the voice of the community. Now, the, the effect of four separate voices is to give testimony, my language, to give testimony about suffering from all these different angles. They have to, it has to be done from all these different angles because you can't do it from one because there is no one narrative of what happened as there never is in the middle of a catastrophe. So, so there's, that's the first thing. Many voices giving variety of testimonies. The second thing is um, the voices. I think all four are looking for a witness, by which I mean they cry out asking for someone, particularly God, to see them in their condition of suffering. They want they say, oh, Lord, look, see, the Hebrew goes out of its way to emphasize the request. Look and see my suffering. Mm -hmm. Now, why? I mean, I ask that question with the help of some social sciences. You know, why? What happens when someone who suffered gets seen in their suffering? It, it helps ever so briefly that they are not alone, that they're not just crazy, that the chaos of the world around them is recognized by someone else and they're, they're given humanity back by being seen. Mm -hmm. So they cry to be seen. Okay, so, the, so those are the first two things, two voices, the request is for God to see them. Mm -hmm. Then the next thing is, um, among a few other little poems in the Bible, um, the Book of Lamentations is distinguished by the fact that some of its poems are acrostic. That is, they go in alphabetical order. The first 
line of the first verse is all, all of, A, B, C, D, all the way up to um, Z in, in English. Um, and, and then if the ones toward the end of the last two poems are not uh, acrostic, they're alphabetic. They, there's 22 lines, as many lines as there are Hebrew letters, Hebrew consonants, excuse me, Hebrew consonants. Why make a big deal out of this besides the artistic power of it? The big deal of it for me is that the acrostic and alphabetic forms seem to be a way to try to take the, I keep using the word chaos, the overwhelming nature of suffering and destruction and put it into a framework. A, B, C, there's order and there's a beginning and an end. At the same time, the fact that they're alphabetic seems to suggest that only the alphabet begins to name what's happened. It just begins to name it. Well, I want to say two more things about the shape of the book. Go for it. Okay. How many? Am I in the fourth? Go for it. Go for it. Okay. So I, I talked about four voices, speaking voices, yeah. and they all want to be seen and heard and spoken to by the missing voice. And this is the theological significance to me. The voice that's missing is the voice of God. Mm. So you have five chapters of poetry about suffering and pain. You have anger, you have fury, you have grief and lamentation, wailing. Um, you have concrete description of captivity, of, um, of, of torture, really of torture of the, of the man in the center, the, the central pump. And then you get a description of the collapse of society in the last two poems. And all of them are asking God to look, see, hear, and speak. And God never does. And I think this is so significant. The voice that doesn't appear is the only one they want. Now, I want to say this is a good thing for us. Yes. And the reason it's a good thing for us is because if God speaks, everything else becomes less important. And how do I know this? I know this from the history of interpretation. There's one little part that's really, really, really hopeful. And that's the captured, tortured soldier in the middle who says the parts that are part of a Christian hymn, a lot of people might know, um, your mercies are new every morning. And there are about maybe eight or 10 lines where this captured, tortured person says, oh, in the morning, I remember, I remember your mercies are faithful every day. That becomes the most important line for interpreters. That becomes like the good news hidden in the middle of all this. And I think it is. But what disturbs me about it is that it turns this book of sorrow and grief into a work prematurely of hope. So now, again, drawing from psychology and social sciences, I think the way this book becomes a book of comfort is that it honors the suffering voices. It honors, it gives power to, it leaves alone in the house shaped by the poems, the pain of human beings. Mm. And I think, um, I think it's, uh, it's premature to move to divine solutions to this. It's, it's got to be honored and seen. So that's what I think is the, um, for me, amazing power of this book. So I wish I could take that, that overview that you just did and just give it to everyone that I know as oh. <laughs> why, this, why this book is so rich. But it, but it also, I think, offers up the question, why when people hear about the book of Lamentations or they, um, or they hear that people are like walking through that, do they um, have such a negative response? Why do people on the one hand find it so hard to read Lamentations? And it's maybe because they misinterpret it or, or like people do focus on that part in chapter three that you mentioned. Right. But then chapters four and five return to this hopelessness. They do. They do. And, and secondly for you, um, why or why do 
we as society um, in the West tend to shy away from the process or the necessity of dealing with our, with our trauma and with our despair. Yeah, why? I, I, the, these are questions, of course, I can't answer, but I have lots of I have lots of opinions about them. Uh, so let me let me see to start with what you know, why? Why is it so hard to read this book? Because if you're having a happy day and you're getting married next Sunday, you don't want to read this. You, you've got life's great. So it, it's it's for its time and its time might be during pandemic when around us people are being uh, losing so much. Um, it's time might be when um, you have lost a loved one. That's when it's time is. But um, I, that's not the only thing. I, I, I say in my book how much I think American culture is a culture of denial. And I'm talking about my own wonderful family. My own wonderful family was Irish Catholic immigrants. So far back, we don't even know the stories. But that's the point. We don't know the stories because uh, as my immigrant families, families, plural, came to this country, they left because of sorrow and loss and, and the desire for a better life. And so they even, um, they, they just repressed what happened. And I, I do remember this in fifth grade coming home from my little Catholic school and we were celebrating St. Patrick's Day and I came home and said, dad, are we Irish? because everybody was, <laughs> you didn't talk about it, you just were. And are we Irish? And he said, no, we're American. So that's become a, a moment for me that suggests something about the history of my family. And um, so I think that secondly, the US culture, I don't know about Australia, I don't know about down under, I don't know about, I think less in Europe, but US culture is a culture of the happy ending we want happy endings. We want everything to work out. And we think, unlike this book, the voices in this book, we think in a linear, a linear way. So it's hard now, work hard, uh, struggle. I, I, I've inherited this. Struggle, do everything you can, achieve all you can, and then things are going to open up and become beautiful for you. And so, so, um, so the attitude of walking on the sunny side of the street, the attitude of um, smile, though your heart is breaking because tomorrow is going to be a better day, that attitude pervades the culture. And so I think that adds to the difficulty of turning to a book like Lamentations and the other laments in the Psalms that we have until, until things start to fall apart. Then that resource is there, but we haven't been attentive to it so nobody really knows it's there except the few. Mm -hmm. I don't mean the enlightened few, just the few who are lucky enough to have encountered it. Yeah. So that leads me to my next question. A lot of your work deals with the reality of and responses to trauma. Mm -hmm. What drew you to this work? And could you provide <laughs> some examples of thinking or, as you said at the top of this, conversations and practices yeah. that have been taught that you see as problematic in our responses to trauma? Oh, I don't know about the second one, but the first one, what drew me to it? I, I, this, is, this is a wordless experience. I got involved in it because uh, Carol Newsom and Sharon Ringy were putting together the women's Bible commentary way back in the whatever year, 80 something, and asked me if I would do Jeremiah and also write on Lamentations. And I did. And, uh, and then John Collins asked me to write on Lamentations for the New Interpreter's Bible. Now, that's what happened to me. I got into it and I began to see myself, my inner world, somehow reflected there. And then when, when I was working on the New Interpreter's Bible, which you may not know anything about, but it's a commentary with efforts to bring it up to, up to into the contemporary world, separated from it. And when I finished that, I said, there's so much more to say about this. And so I got into, um, I got into Lamentations and then asked Orbis Books if they would, if they would uh, want a, a book from me on it. So that's how I did this. But I have to admit, 
Before that, I worked on lament form with the prophet Jeremiah. That was my dissertation topic. And those are five laments uh, smack in the center of the book of Jeremiah. And, that, and they're all about suffering. <laughs> so I have to know that, that somehow there's echoes in me. And, you know, I can't tell you about me being traumatized in any profound way, although I have some childhood stories. Um, one, I'm going to use, I'm going to tell you this one. So I was, I was really little and um, I, it was in the 1950s and I had pains in my legs. I think I was three or four years old and they, they required that they were afraid it was polio. This is before the salt vaccine. And so I was taken to the hospital. I remember being taken there. I remember being in the crib screaming and having a nurse leaning on the end of the crib, trying to calm me. I remember my mother coming, remember what she was wearing and remember watching her leave because they were not allowed to stay. And then, so I mean, I have sympathy for pandemic people right now, really. And then I remember a, a girl in an iron lung, I remember breathing. And this, this was this, a, a beginning experience of abandonment. And I think I put that as the root in my own inner work, trying to understand my attraction to this kind of stuff. Um, but I, that's, so that's how I think it, it worked for me. But I think that that early childhood experience created an inner narrative that I then reenacted through much of my life. And I'm only kind of at really toward the end of my life now, who knows, but um, I'm, 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 seeing, um, I'm seeing how it played out in my life. And how, in a way, it was a gift so I could do this work, but in a way, it was living out the pain of, of the life. So, so, uh, so that's highly personal when this, these, these things arise out of a whole community's pain. But I believe it's appropriate for all of us, especially in our individualized cultures. Could you unpack for us how grief or allowing space and time to process grief contributes to, I guess, true human flourishing. This, I would, you took the words out of my mouth. I think if we don't do that, when we have individual and collective disasters, we, we will reenact it, we will turn down part of our humanity, and we won't flourish. And uh, in the U.S., I can talk about the Civil War as not being terribly grieved. Uh, and we're still doing the work of the Civil War in the United States. Um, I can talk about slavery as a place that we have not grieved any side of that. The African-American community is doing a lot better than the white community, but we're just touching the top of that. Um, I think, too, about um, my father's generation. My father was, uh, went to, uh, into World War II and he didn't see combat or anything, but he saw enough awfulness. He didn't want to talk about it. And it was fine. He didn't need to talk about it with his children, but they were of a generation of not talking about pain at all. And so I can see that, I could see this sort of steeliness that came over him when, when that came up. And had, had, had we had access to modes of grieving, then I think there would be, um, I think there would be much more um, joy in people's lives. I have one more little incident that I just learned about this week. Um, yes. I'm going to be doing a webinar for um, military chaplains along with some other people and was talking with a military chaplain yesterday as we prepared for this to um, talk about moral injury, which is language I didn't know when I was doing my work, but it's when, when someone has experienced uh, grief that goes against their whole being, it seems to destroy their being. And he was talking about the problem with, with, um, returning soldiers from various wars and that the military has lots and lots of rituals for grieving, but they don't have any formal way for the buddies of, the, of, the, of someone killed in warfare to actually do 
this alone. And hence his argument was that the soldiers are the soldiers were grieving in a public way in front of everybody else and really couldn't let down. And so he was making the case that we need we, they need strategies for enabling such kind of um, such kind of mourning and grieving. And um, you know, I'm big on crying. I think um, I think and, and men are not allowed to go cry in this culture. That's another, that's another part of it. <laughs> you know, if you go to other parts of the world, that isn't necessarily the case. So I don't think it's genetic to men. But I do think that this sort of the huge embarrassment when people have tears is another form of denial. And um, if they're in a public space and people apologize when they are brought to tears. And so how do you help them? How do you help people? How does one, well, how does one take care of oneself? I think that's the first one, especially if you're a religious leader or any kind of uh, place like that, communal leader. Um, but um accept, be able to accept grief. I think it's first necessary to be able to accept one's own grief, to identify it and name it and find a place for it. And um, if I'm not talking too much, but I want to add this thought um, that follows on it, that, um, uh, that grief, grief repressed really destroys a community. And I know some of this from a school where I used to teach, uh, a school, Catholic Foreign Mission called Mary Knoll, where people would be returning from places around the globe, um, both natives and, and missioners to study theology. And um, in particular, I remember um, uh, some missioners coming back from Cambodia after the Pol Pot decimation of the pub, of, population and how no laugh, people couldn't talk. Their words were more or less taken away from them and they were just numbed. And the way to break through that kind of numbness is through grieving. And you may not be able to grieve straight on. You may have to grieve indirectly, which is back to Gen back to Genesis on my brain, back to Lamentations. Lamentations allows us to see other forms of grief, other characters undergoing grief. And so we can see our own loss and pain indirectly. Mm. I've learned that from, from um, trauma studies that um, the pain is um, perhaps inacceptable in a, if, it's been, if it's been too traumatic, a violent scene, it, 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 it takes away one's ability to give voice. It takes away um, sense of, of reality. And, and you, if you go back into it, you're gonna be plunged back into the terror of whatever's happened to you in traumatic situations, and even maybe in lesser situations, so that if you can see it in a symbolic world happening to someone else, it both touches your experience and opens it a little bit and doesn't re-traumatize you. And this, this, is, this is critical, especially for pastors, uh, uh, to know this, they, they need to talk to psychologists if they haven't. And I think that's happening in seminaries now anyway, but um, to, to plunge people too quickly back into their mem memory is terrible. But to heal, what is required is a new narrative. It isn't denial of what happens. It's taking what happened and putting it into a larger narrative that's consistent with your culture and yet broad enough, big enough, wide enough to do that. And that's what I think the Bible does. Even if you don't believe in God, this is what the Bible does over and over again. And if you don't believe me, look at the Gospels. What are the Gospels doing? <laughs> um, what insights or uh, frameworks um, or even tools do you suggest that 
um, people could use to even start okay, um, good. imagining themselves in that in that narrative. So when they look right. backwards, there's and we will talk about shame and guilt because I think that's right. part of this. Yes. But they don't have shame or guilt in regards to what has happened, either right. to them or around them. Mm-hmm. But they're able to claim it as their story, but then grieve, almost giving themselves permission. Like our society doesn't tend to equip people to do that. So doesn't. what is a way to reimagine that for our listeners? Okay. If you don't believe in God, you can you can go to television, movies, and those kinds of things. You'll find I mean, you can do that anyway. Um, and, and of course, for me, another resource for this is poetry, where condensed, beautiful language can sometimes help us touch those deep regions of our being. Um, uh, the other thing is, you know, a, a whole cultural change is needed in a way, in a classroom even, how how you help children deal with what's going on in their family or with themselves. And I don't know the answer to that one, um, but I know it would be the place to start. I think in the churches and synagogues, we have traditions if used. My colleague, my former colleague, Walter Brueggemann has lots of writing about laments, lamentations, and how um, he did, a, he, did uh, he made the declaration that we have all these Psalms of lament that hardly ever get used and treated by pastors, people in a position to give this kind of resource to the community and how they ever were. And I said, oh, well, Catholic, the Catholic church doesn't do that. And of course I went to all the lectionaries and it does the exact same thing. It's so it's like, it's like all, it's, it's like the cultural breakthrough has to come, come, has to happen at a level that's widespread. Mm-hmm. And um, the only place we can start is with ourselves, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that this is sacred work. I think, I think inner work, spirituality that takes us there is, is the way forward. The, that's all we have mm-hmm. control over. Uh, that's all I have control over. So your work and your writing, I must say, is remarkable. And Thank you're you. easily one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. Thank you, Toby. Very kind. In your work, though, what does it look like for people and individuals to create brave spaces around trauma, suffering, and grief? And um, what needs to be corrected in either our churches, our communities, or greater society for that brave space to be? Okay, for, for brave space to happen, my theory is. We have to start with ourselves in our churches, in our societies. So when one becomes aware of this and one can say, oh, well, you know, one can do the, the, old, the old routine, the easy routine. Oh, well, I'm really sad and lonely. But compared to people who, have, who live in Yemen and don't have any food um, and are victims of colonialism, mine is nothing. So that's the first thing is breaking that. All suffering is sacred. This is it. All suffering is sacred. And if it happens to be your cup of tea, this suffering, that's where the start, that's where the start is. Um, and so if, if I can make a theory, if I can make inner space in myself to see and receive my own suffering and, uh, and stop running away from it, but embrace it, then I might have room to be a witness for my friend, my sister, my neighbor, my students. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can, res- if I don't get scared when I hear people are suffering, I can be the beginning of a witness. I can be present to them in their suffering and not say, oh, well, tomorrow it'll be better. Or, oh, well, at least you didn't have your leg cut off. You only had your toes cut off. I mean, the the kinds of ways, I'm being jocose here, but the kinds of ways we we reduce people's pain, um, that's got to stop. Um, I think um, encouraging 
I think women do this. A lot of my women friends do this. We take care of each other in these deep ways. But, you know, we're, my friends are old, so that's how we got to this. Um, I think um, communal capacity to hear other people's suffering. And so I think church leaders have to have that capacity. You know, I, I do remember um, at Columbia Seminary, one of our, one of our colleagues um, teaching students, maybe it was CPE, teaching students to visit hospital rooms and, and students suddenly discovering as they're standing outside the door that they're terrified to go in. So what are they terrified of? That, that they're gonna say the wrong thing, of course, but also they haven't faced their own suffering when that happens. And so those are little ways that I think we can begin um, and, and I think that work is actually ahead of the churches and the synagogues and the and uh, and any any other religious institutions in the in the United States and around the globe because of the pandemic. So people who think they live in a in a safe secure world are suddenly discovering they aren't. It's not safe, it's, and they've lost members of their families, and et cetera. So that work is there. You know, how to grieve that? We live in a hyper-individualistic community. We really do. And um, so if, if my neighbor or a family member or a friend is suffering, yes, what are ways in which I can go almost suffer with them yes. without, without, I guess, changing gears too quickly and doing what you said at the top of the conversation of like, oh, tomorrow's going to be great. Or like, you know, you'll be right. Or, you know, there's this Australianism that if someone's been like knocked down or experienced some form of violence or trauma, we have this overarching generalization of she'll be right. Like everything's going to be okay. Right. <laughs> just, just, just get through it. Right. But how do we suffer with someone, allow them to experience that as in a very healthy way. Okay, good. Uh, and not kind of bring them out of it too right, quickly that's because it. they need that for me. You put that perfectly. And I think you, you've sort of answered your own question with the question um, because um, there is, she's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. That's how we, and we, that, I, that's necessary. It has mm-hmm. to happen. It's a survival tactic. And I, I think survival tactics are critical to get through the worst in the immediate onslaught of whatever we're talking about, the death in a family or an accident or a, a war, get through it, keep going. That's, that's survival. But survival isn't enough. We want your language, flourishing. We want flourishing. And so um, I think that these books help us. I think, um, in Jeremiah, for example, who's allegedly the author of Lamentations, but probably isn't. In Jeremiah, for example, the, the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 24 or so, are really about anger, violence of all kinds. The second half, well, it actually starts around 20, chapter 20. The second part of the book, we have a lot of stories about Jeremiah and the way he suffered. And he, all the things that happened to him in these little little anecdotes about him they're they're he's tortured he's captured he's he's left in the bottom of a a cistern to die it's a muddy cistern on top of that he has no food all the things that happened to him are what happened in warfare in the babylonian invasions and but every single story about him tells that he survives he lives so it takes us that far, these stories, that Jeremiah lived, Jeremiah's our man, he's us, he symbolizes us, we will live. But in Jeremiah, there are a few, um, a few sections that go well beyond the suffering to the promise of a new covenant, to the promise ahead of a world that's different and it's just a little bit of it in the middle of chapters 30 to 33. It's called the Little Book of Consolation. It's plopped right in there. And then you go back to disaster and catastrophe of all kinds. And it's as if maybe after surviving, after just holding on, 
can point ahead and you start to see the narrative shifting. You see a new creation coming about. Mm. And, and so um, I, I think I, I'm not adding to what you said. I'm just putting other words on top of it. I think it's a process depending on the depth of, and, and that one needs to go to our cultural resources. Um, I wish our churches were better about this. Mm-hmm. I, I actually attend a, a, an African-American Catholic church and they're pretty good about grieving, I have to say. <laughs> They've got that down. So that there's, to add to all this is the music, uh, the, you know, the music of spirituals that, um, convey with heart and soul the passion of the people having survived. So music's another source besides poetry. Um, but more than anything, it's, it seems to me, it's being, someone can see you in your suffering and you no longer think you're crazy. You, 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 you're embraced, you're human, you're whole. Two final questions. Okay. The first one is in your book around lamentations. uh, How is one's imagination, social and spiritual, shaped by what you describe as a theology of witness? So how does that kind of contribute to not only ourselves, but our community? That's the first question. (laughs) Okay. This is where we're getting philosophical, I hear. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, okay, by a theology of witness, I mean, I, I mean, being seen either as an individual or a community in your suffering. It's not washed over, it's seen. Mm-hmm. And that allows one to have, I believe, that one's humanity restored, mm-hmm. or at least the shame, the shame is gone. The shame of, oh my gosh, look at this. Um, the shame, the shame is, is at least seen and accepted. And what does that do? That, that opens, that opens the mind, the possibility that things are not as utterly hopeless. You see, it seems to me in all this literature that that it's, it isn't only that one is suffering, 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 or the community is suffering, suffering, suffering. It's that when one gets in that state, there seems to be no possibility of an opening for the future. It seems completely hopeless. And, and um, it, I, I'm, during COVID, I'm helping just a tiny bit at Columbia Seminary with small group around text. And yesterday, the small group was up Zoom, of course. The small group was reading Ezekiel 37, moving to another book, uh, the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones. And yes. in it, of course, the prophet walks out and he's, God brings him to a valley, which is filled with bones that are dry, dry, dry. They rattle. They're so, they're, they're so dead. It's hopeless. And the pro- God asks the prophet Ezekiel in this vision, um, can these bones live? And the obvious answer is, no, of course they can't. Mm-hmm. But the prophet says, prophet says in a moment of opening, Oh God, only you know. Mm. Now, I find that story, uh, I I just actually noticed it for the first time yesterday when we were working on it, but I find that to be a moment of such new space created by a vision, a dreamlike vision, in which the prophet is turning to some possibility. And of course, the, the vision goes on and the, they all gather together and come back and there's a multitude standing there covered in flesh. So, so that story, it seems to me, does exactly what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. It, it recasts death mm-hmm. and it, it's suggesting it isn't the end um, in the person of the prophet. So, uh, so that's how the literature works for me. Mm-hmm. And that's what shapes the vision. That's what shapes the possibility of imagining something else. It's possible. Only you know. Now, the day it happens to you, nobody's going to think this. It may take years to arrive at such a place. The second question and the last one will be, what, what advice practically do you have for people listening to take the first steps of self-care? Well, okay. we've spoken a lot about looking after ourselves first. Right. Dealing with 
trauma and despair and right. the violence. What are some practical suggestions that you okay. have? And um, the, the women's culture magazines will tell you to go to a spa and get your nails done and have your hair cut. Uh, that's good. No, I'm not opposed to that, but that's not it. Um, I, for me, it has to do with beginning to listen to your body. I'm talking to myself now. Begin to listen to your body. Watch how you get scared. Watch how your shoulders tighten. Watch, watch how you... Um, override your own bodily and emotional needs mm. and see them. And um, I think um, it, in my tradition, there's such a thing as spiritual director. I think this is wonderful. Um, and I've had friends who are my spiritual directors. I think friends being able to talk about things with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, of, of pastors, that this is the role of pastors, mm-hmm. uh, at least one of them. And um, I think um, learning to stop hating ourselves. Mm. And um, for some, that's very difficult. Yeah. And uh, abusing, abusing ourselves, work, 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 um, as if survival depended on it. Mm-hmm. Talking about myself. As if survival depended on it. Where did that come from? So I, you know, I've tried to find my own story therapists are it, it is a sacrament if you have a good therapist that's a oh, sacramental yeah. gift in your life and it can help at the right time mm-hmm. and the right person not always and not mm-hmm. till you're ready but i guess the first thing is really being treating one's own inner space as a sacred space mm-hmm. and um so meditation, meditation, I'm a big one on meditation. Um, this last hour or so has been a gift and uh, I really thank you for your time. Toby, thank you so much. It's such an honour for me. Thank you. Okay.